What are you mm-hmm. looking for in terms of like an opportunity so that people can program their mind into thinking like, hey, I should probably look for something like this whenever they're analyzing a deal. Whenever you're looking to acquire a property, you should look at the unit mix of each property. So the unit mix is how much your property is charging per bedroom type. So you're going to get the average of each unit charge per bedroom type. If it's a one bedroom or two bedroom and they're charging, let's say, $800 and $1,000, check with the small area fair market rent just by going on the website, HUD SAFMR, and check by zip code how much is a small area fair market rent for that unit bedroom type. Multiply that by 1.5, and that's your maximum rent that you could charge for that unit bedroom type. So let's say if your one bedrooms are $800 and your small area fair market rent times 150 is $1,200, you have a $400 delta that you could increase it to for that one bedroom unit type. That's a big opportunity in terms of net operating income increase in your EGI and the effective gross income that you could charge. In terms of sequencing, if you're doing like a big value add project and you're renovating a lot of our apartments, like 10, 50, maybe even 100 apartments, and you're trying to pursue that markup to market strategy, do you typically do that after all 100 units are done? We don't start engaging any of those third-party reports until we know that the rent comparability study, the RCS, comes back with a certain targeted rent that we're aiming to do to cover those renovations. Usually on our end, we like to see at least $250 delta increase in rents before we engage the third-party reports. So the RCS comes first whenever we're doing a chapter 15 market to market. And then we work with the other appraisers, the assessors to engage the phase one environmental, the PCNA, and also the phase one report of the deal. And then if it's a tax credit property, we engage other third parties as well in order to make sure that we have like a market study done. And there's just other factors, like I said, that are involved with that. But the RCS is the most critical part in order to determine whether we can do certain kinds of renovations and also wish list items whenever we're doing a chapter 15 market to market. Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we are back with Andrea Garcia because... She is going to give us another masterclass on all the terminologies related to closing on a deal and how to figure out how to increase the rent to stabilize the property. These are all the critical items that you would want to know if you're getting involved in affordable housing, particularly, especially if you're trying to go into multifamily. And I always think about this as like the major leagues, the NBA, this is the league that Andrea plays in every single day when it comes to affordable housing. So we're so lucky to have her back. Andrea, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me on. I mean, oh, you- the way you introduced me, I feel like such an MVP already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have single-handedly provided so much value to the affordable housing community as a leader. And again, Andrea, I, I can never ever thank you enough because you have taken so much time out of your day to come and teach other folks and help them get a fast track essentially to getting involved with affordable housing. So I'm just so thankful for you. I hope so. That's actually music to my ears because, you know, when you start off in this industry, like I mentioned, I I started working in multifamily investing about seven years ago. Uh, So when I first came to work at the company, I do work with full-time that invest in affordable housing multifamily uh, through Section 8 tax credit investments. Um, 
it's amazing to me because there's such a learning curve, right? The, the learning curve is huge whenever you're coming from, I was working in commercial real estate, buying up uh, basically shopping centers and then moved on to multifamily affordable housing, which is a very big difference in terms of what are the terms used whenever you're in these business development meetings. So I figured I would cut the learning curve down for some people and let them understand how some of these terms work together whenever you are hearing something like, oh, let's do a rent increase. It doesn't work the same as a regular market rate apartment building, right? So, and so the processes that we go through whenever we acquire, refinance, basically go through the due diligence phase, any kind of transactional process we undergo with multifamily, we do need to understand these terms in order for us to have a little bit more of a flow in conversation with brokers, lenders, especially with our own team. So that's why I'm happy to help. Yes. And that is why, and I'll tell the audience right now, the things that Andrea has taught me allowed me to sound way more educated, way more knowledgeable, and most importantly, have the credibility, like Andrea said, when I was talking to brokers. I would get deals and I would say, okay, what's the HAP contract? What, what's the what's the timeline? When does that come into renewal? And it was all thanks to listening and re-listening to my own podcast conversation with Andrea that that allowed me to be prepared for that conversation. So this is really, really applicable to the real world. This is not just theory. This is real stuff that you can use every single day. Exactly. I feel like, so in our last podcast, we discussed some terminology when it comes to acquiring the deal the due diligence process, what certain terms mean whenever you are talking to brokers and acquiring those assets. But right now, I feel like what would be best if we discuss is what's going to happen once we close on the acquisition of the deal, some ways in which we can increase the rent and what those terms mean. And also when it comes time to closing, what are some terms that you could work with on the broker end along with your lender as well? So um, yeah, I'm happy to Go over the list and then feel free to join our affordable housing community in the process so that you can keep up to date with some of these tips and tricks that Kent has so amazingly provided for all of us. Only because to help with Andrea. That's it. This is the community that we're building together. And for those of you that do not know Andrea yet, make sure you follow her at Andrea Garcia, R-E-I, on Instagram. We're going to get her to thousands of followers at the minimum <laughs> uh, because she, guys, she deserves it and she has provided so much value. This is a friend that you want to have, hands down, every single day. Uh, I love talking to Andrea whenever I catch up with her. So I swear she does not bite. If you DM her, she will respond and she is so kind. So, well, all right, let's get to the, the podcast because I want to talk about the third party reports because I think we talked a little bit about last time, but just give us a sense of what these third-party reports are for, for closing on a deal on today. Like, why do you even need third-party reports? And what are you looking for specifically when you go through these reports? One thing that's important to understand whenever you are going to engage third-party reports is the costs associated with them. The costs, of course, it's going to mean a big deal to your team because it's going to come out of pocket most of the time for you to put the money up front with your general partnership group for these third party reports. And eventually it could get reimbursed whenever we're going to do the closing of the property through the closing and settlement statement. So whenever you're thinking about these third party reports, of course, you have to understand what the lender is requiring of you guys to engage. And depending on the age of the building, where it's located, they'll tell you what are the lender requirements. But usually the third party reports will include what's called an appraisal. 
a PCA property condition assessment, the phase one environmental assessment of a report of a property. And then also it could include any within that anything that is lead-based paint, asbestos, radon, um, seismic, which is, you know, if there's an earthquake zone, and it's going to include a few other items as well, depending on the severity of the condition of the property. And so, these are all applicable reports, sometimes even for development projects, but let's focus on the multifamily items today. So I might ask you a few questions about each one, Andrea, just so we can make sure that oh. they're applicable. Because for the appraisal, right, usually that's generating the fair market value of the property. What are you typically looking for when you get an appraisal? Are you trying to see, is it close to what I'm offering? Because that's usually what people gauge their their offer at, right? So tell us exactly. a little bit about what you're looking at when it comes to an appraisal. You know, it's interesting with an appraisal is that it's similar to the single family realm where the lender will basically lend up for the most part to the appraised value. So sometimes what we look for is what's the high, depending on what type of deal it is, if it's the highest and best use of the property, what's the land value, the land assessed value. And then there's also, if you're working on a tax credit deal, you're, you can usually ask for as is value, as improved value. And it all you also have to let the appraisal, appraiser know about whether it is going to be a tax credit property or if it has Section 8 cap contract attached to it, because that does affect the value as well, because there are income limits as well as rental limits as well on those units so the appraisal it's very important to understand like i said what are those different types of values because it will affect the type of lending you get from the lender yeah and i love that you brought up the fact that they can give you as is value and then as improved value because not only do you're getting third-party support for what you think the property will be worth but potentially you can use that as a conversation starter for your team your financier, your your partners, limited partners. Again, this is not solicitation for any investments. This is not investment advice, full disclosure. But these are all artifacts that you want to have when you are talking about a deal so that you don't appear as if you're just making a number out of thin air, which is going to be really important. Yes, definitely. So the appraisal is the first part. Like we said before, a P property condition assessment, it could also be called a PCA, PCR, you know, the property condition report. That will also depend on what kind of property it is and what also what kind of lending you're going to get. If we're looking at developing a property and it's going to be a HUD property, usually you're going to engage a more expensive report. It's called a PCNA, property condition assessment, essentially that isn't um it's going to use different tools like a HUD e-tool, but there you really should discuss and ask these quotes from your third-party inspector to see what are the potential costs you're going to get from this. Because the types of assessments conducted at these for these project-specific reports will vary depending on lender requirements. So, but usually just to acquire the property, it's going to be a property condition report, which is, it, it really shouldn't be too much more than the PCNA. And Andrea, when you get these reports, are you looking at specifically on, let's just use an analogy of like a home inspection report for a single family home. Are you looking exactly. through the reports and figuring out how do I update my underwriting? How do I update my capital expenditures? How do I update whatever I need to get a better or higher level of accuracy 
within your underwriting? Like, what are you doing with this report? Yes. So with the PCNA or the property condition report as well, what you're going to essentially do is figure out what are the CapEx, capital expenditure items that you're anticipating, if there's any roof replacements, if there's anything that your team will need in terms of a sewage scoping inspection. They check the exteriors conditions, the interior conditions of the units. It's also going to let you know what are the potential costs, like the actual useful life for each system that's at the property, which is really important for you to understand because you, whenever you are doing your underwriting, you're going to essentially assess what's needed over the next couple of years for you to replace at the property. So if the useful life of, let's say, a roof or the useful life of the air conditioning central AC unit is about to finish in the next two years, you should budget for that in your underwriting. I love that. So does that similar principle carry over to the environmental reports? What, what are you looking for there? Well, with the environmental reports, it's amazing to me how much people can overlook, but the main items that you're looking for, just to as a call out in the property condition report and the P phase one environmental, those two reports will be usually be engaged around the same time with the same assessor, but they are going to be asked looking for different items. And with the phase one environmental, what they're going to do is going to see if there's any kind of life safety issue. There's going to they're going to see if there's any hazardous conditions or run recognized environment environmental conditions. Sorry, I can't talk today. <laughs> but basically they're going to see if any items on your property are going to be a potential hazard to your tenants. So the phase 1 environmental is critical not only for you as an owner investor but also for your lender to see if there's going to be any potential lawsuits if people are going to get sick. Uh, so this is very good to know because sometimes when you engage a phase, phase one environmental, a recognized envir environmental condition could show up as an underground storage tank, or maybe you're near a dry cleaner, or maybe your property is where an old gas station used to exist. So this is very important for your lender to know because it might require additional testing to see if it's anything in the environment will be a potential harm to the tenants, which is going to essentially affect the lending as well. Wow, you explained that so beautifully because we had that same issue at one of our developments where it used to be at the site of a former gas station. So one, they found some issues, but then, then they would require a second level. So there will be a phase two. But then at the same time, what folks should understand is usually with these reports, usually you should get remedies. And yes. usually those remedies might be tied to a dollar amount so that if it requires additional investment, that might be a, a conversation you have with the seller. That might be have a conversation that you have with your with your partners about what the additional capital is required yeah. for something like that. So it's going to be super. Yeah. In the phase one environmental, you're going to see testing for radon, asbestos, lead-based paint, depending if the site was built prior to 1978. You also might see a seismic report come with it, which if it's located in California, more than likely you will get a seismic testing of the property. And then there's other kinds of testing that could be involved in that. But you're typically going to see different kinds of testing show up for a phase one environmental, depending on what the lender requirements are. Okay. I know you're not an earthquake expert or a scientist, but the seismic report, I'm always a little interested in. Like, I've never seen one before. What, what do you typically see in a seismic report? Does it tell you like how much more structurally sound the property needs to get built? Tell us a little bit more about like what, what's in a seismic report. 
You know, it's interesting. The last time we acquired a property in California, anytime we're about to acquire a property in California, we usually engage a seismic report because it's the property is located in a zone where more, you know, it's along those fault lines. So what they're usually going to assess is whether number one on a seismic report is if this property is going to go down in case of an earthquake. That's the number one thing that they assess. And because of that, they want to see when the property was built. They look at foundational issues that might exist. They look at um, the operating operations and maintenance program that's in place at the site. And they're also going to determine whether or not we do have safety protocols in case of an earthquake and also potential insurance risks because of the seismic report. That's usually what we look for. Wow. And I imagine that report's probably going to be used by the lender to assess the risk and also by insurance companies, I'm guessing. Exactly. It's going to determine whether you're going to, your ta- your insurance will go up just for the earthquake factor on the seismic. Oh, and that could be really pricey, guys. So just, just remember that. Um, wow. We just went through so many third-party reports. I feel like an expert already just listening to you explain it, Andrea. Tell us a little bit more about the other vocabulary is what I would call it associated with this. We, we, you mentioned sometimes like, hey, there's upper tiers and lower tiers and borrow funds. Tell us a little bit about what those terminology means and when are they used during the transaction? Whenever we're acquiring a property, usually we have to go through our as the SEC attorney that's going to set up the different structures and entities and also a transactional attorney, which will set up like the property LLC, the managing membership LLCs. And then also from there, there could be managing membership interest LLCs or limited partner LLCs. So whenever we determine where the money will go, it's essentially usually going to come out of the, some costs will be coming out of the upper tier or lower tier, depending on what the cost is. The upper tier is a property ownership's LLC, the actual ownership LLC, because this is the LLC that is basically going to receive the um, escrow funding. So they're going to be tied as a trustee to the escrow funding. Or also, if it's an operating expense, let's say if you guys need to pay for insurance, if it doesn't already come out of the insurance escrow, if there's no more money in the insurance escrow, it will come from the property property's operating account. So the lower tier of expenses is the operating account. The operating account is the one that receives, it's, it's handled by the property manager, essentially. They're going to make sure that all the expenses that are coming in from the site, like the third-party contracts, um, landscaping, anything that's in your expenses above the line of the net operating income is usually going to come from the property's operating account. And it's also receiving money from the rent, from the tenants. So it's it's important to understand the differences and how you're going to expense these um expenses along the way. And it's very important to work with your tax strategist, even your cost segregation strategist to be able to understand where these where the money should be coming in and out of. The borrower funds is essentially the equity escrow. And it's, you know, it acts as a guarantee to the seller that the investor has a capital for the investment. It could be in the form of a preferred equity investment of the deal, but escrows typically required at closing usually include replacement reserve, tax, and insurance escrows. Those are separated at closing because your lender wants to make sure that your property, basically the money that is set aside, is going to account for making those payments separate from the debt service coverage. 
Well, you mentioned one more term in there. I want to make sure you can help explain that a little bit better for audience. What is preferred equity? What does that mean? So preferred equity is your preferred equity is your company's way of essentially getting an investment from a from somebody that's your limited partner. And because let's say if you get $100,000 for your investment, you're going to give them, let's say a 6% preferred equity per year, meaning that you have to pay your limited partner $6,000 from that $100,000 every year. That's tier number one of the investment return. Tier number two would be another hurdle. So that hurdle could be an IRR, internal rate of return hurdle. And from there, it's going to be based off of a percentage split. So let's say your limited partner gets 70% of it, your general partner gets 30%. So that that those splits are based on the waterfall calculation that you guys pre-estimate at closing. So prior to closing, you should know what your investors' waterfall returns are going to be and where that money is going to come from and how it's going to be allocated to your investors. Because of course, you don't want to walk away from a deal just by giving away 100000 and not knowing where it's going to come from or knowing what are the potential pro forma returns, right? So sometimes some investors offer what's called preferred equity. That's a great explanation. And you explained that so well again, uh, just on the spot. I knew I asked you that off the cuff, but for folks that are listening, you got to understand your waterfall structure, which means like, how do your investors get back their money? How do they get a return on their investment? And in what order does that follow? And that's exactly what Andrea talked through. It's like every single deal will have its own structure. Because sometimes we get this question all the time. Andrea is like, hey, how should I structure this? And sometimes people forget, maybe you might want to ask your investors too, because you want to design a product that other people would be interested in at the same time. You don't want to just come up with something and have never done any market studies or gotten any feedback from from others. It just doesn't make any sense. So talk to your investors, please. Exactly. I mean, you definitely need to talk to your investors, make sure that you understand where the money's coming from. And that's what's called your capital stack, essentially knowing how the capital is going to stack whenever you're prior to closing so that you know that you can secure the debt with the lender. You're going to potentially do... Um, a rate lock down the line. Um, there, there's just so many other terms involved with the financing aspect of it. I'm hoping to bring on another future guest that's going to explain that's worked really heavily on the equity side with me. And they're geniuses at basically explaining financing structures and financing terminology for you guys. But yeah, just going back to what we were talking about, understanding what are those upper tier lower tier borrower funds and you're gonna your team as a general partner should know how these are going to be credited and debited in your closing statement in your closing and settlement statement it's part of a loan closing package provided to a borrower and it's usually from a loan officer at a lending institution but your partnerships team's ability to submit any credits and debits and review the closing statement is critical so any kind of legal expenses, any capital that your team itself has put up for the deal, even travel costs could be included in those that closing statement for reimbursement. So just make sure that you're working with the proper tax strategist for this as well. That's right. Talk to an attorney. Don't cheap out. Do it right. And also talk to a CPA at the same time. Please get this right stuff done. Uh, get, get this stuff done right. And 
I cannot emphasize what Andrea said just now enough. It's like, it's your responsibility to check the HUD statement and make sure that the closing statement matches exactly what you guys intended the contract to reflect. Exactly. There's no excuses. All right. Awesome. So now that we've closed the deal, Andrea, let's talk a little about increasing the rent, stabilizing the property, because that's where a ton of the value add comes from in multifamily. You have to be able to su support and sustain rental increases to justify the improved value of the property. Now, tell us a little bit. I know we talked about this in a past episode. If you haven't seen it, definitely go and check that out. But tell us a little bit about what the different ways look like to increase rents. Yes. So I'm going to go over it briefly right now about how to increase rents because we did discuss this in a previous episode. But what we were looking for after we've acquired the deal in order to increase the rent, we could do a comparable rent adjustment, an OCAF, Operating Cost Adjustment Factor, Chapter 15 Market to Market, BBRI. And then there could be other ways to increase rent, but usually those are the four main ways. And like we discussed previously that a rent adjustment, it would be what's called... I would say a five-year RCS. Whenever you're thinking about this, just think about the RCS, Rent Comparability Study. So it's set to comparable rents, which may occur in option one or option two of the contract that is at the fifth year anniversary. So like we said, the Section 8 HAP contract usually lasts about 20 years. Every five years, there's that increase in rent to market rents. So your team has the ability to increase rents every five years to market rate. And just by doing this, your team has the influence to work with the appraiser and see if, you know, you're going to kind of challenge them. You're going to be their third eye and seeing, you know, does this comparable make any sense? So you have the ability to work with them so that they could swap out the comps and give you, um, let's say, more favorable rents in your favor. But also this will be reviewed by HUD, which is a government agency. So it has to make sense with on all sides to make sure that the rents that they are increasing to make um they can be approved in that hud rent schedule so at the time of rent of each at the time that we're going to charge those rents what's going to happen is we're going to compose a rent schedule and with that rent schedule like we discussed those are hud approved rents based on what we've already estimated previously that's going to be set to be charged for the next following year um, it's every five years. So the rent comparability study could be done every five years. You can work with HUD to increase it. And then afterwards, what's going to happen is your, your team's going to submit every year an OCAF operating cost adjustment factor. But one thing to note about the five-year RCS is that now effective, I think it was this 2023 year, May 1st of 2023, the new rule is that a HUD commissioned RCS will be commissioned in case your your property's rent uh, RCS concluded rents are above the 150% small area fair market rent. So the small area fair market rent, it's, it's an important tool to understand because you can use this to increase the choice of voucher holders and efficiency in the administration of your housing voucher program. And it goes by zip code. So if the property you're looking at to to acquire it doesn't have a small area fair market rent then you're going to go off of the county's fair market rent based on the bedroom type and the rcs is concluded rent it should be at or above at or below the 150 percent of the small area fair market rent in order to avoid a dueling rcs 
And dueling RCS basically just means it's not approved by HUD. So they're going to, because it's above the 150, so they're going to commission their own RCS in the process. They're going to hire someone else. It's going to delay the process of your approvals. It It's basically not favorable to you to get a dueling RCS because um, it's going to cost you more in the short term. I've seen dueling RCSs last up to a year, maybe a little bit more. So you're basically spending that whole year not charging the market rent that you want to charge for those units, which is costing your investors additional returns. So like I said, it is important to understand that terminology uh, when you're going into increasing the rents and you should work with your property manager that specializes in, in section eight increases as well. Yeah. And, and I know we're going pretty fast over this, everybody, but if you want to look at a podcast that we did on this topic specifically with more examples and more color, just check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Kent underscore HG. And just look for our the podcast we did almost a year ago now on yes. March 15th, uh, 2023. So that's going to be a really, really good one for you guys to talk to because we also went through the definitions. But I really love how you're going about this, Andrea. Maybe the only question I'll have for this piece here is, how do people figure out if there is a quote-unquote opportunity, right? Because we just talked about like, hey, a RCS is every five years. What are mm -hmm. you looking for in terms of like an opportunity so that people can program their mind into thinking like, hey, I should probably look for something like this whenever they're analyzing a deal. What are your thoughts? A big opportunity for your, a big tip I would actually say is that whenever you're looking to acquire a property, you should look at the unit mix of each property. So the unit mix is how much your property is charging per bedroom type. So you're going to get the average of each unit charge per bedroom type. If it's a one bedroom or two bedroom and they're charging, let's say 800 and a thousand dollars, check with the small area fair market rent just by going on the website, HUD SAFMR and check by zip code how much is a small area fair market rent for that unit bedroom type. Multiply that by 1.5, multiply the small area fair market rent by 1.5, and that's your maximum rent that you could charge for that unit bedroom type. So let's say if your one bedrooms are $800 and your small area fair market rent times 150 is, let's say, $1,200, you have a $400 delta that you could increase it to for that one bedroom unit type. That's a big opportunity in terms of net operating income increase in your EGR, in your EGI and the effective gross income that you could charge. Write that one down, everybody, please. That is a huge opportunity. Uh, maybe one follow-up question to that, Andrea, is what about the rent reasonableness test? Do you guys typically get any sort of pushback? Like, hey, you want to charge 150% of small air FMR, but the market rent has not, quote unquote, caught up to that number yet. Have you ever ran into any issues like that? Honestly, I haven't because right now the small area fair market rent is usually way above and well and above the small area fair market rent. It's above the FMR, right? The closest I've seen it come to is maybe $50 under, but I haven't really seen it go over. So now what you're seeing as of 2023 May, you're not seeing that many dueling RCSs come through. You're not seeing that many rejected RCSs, rent comparability studies coming from HUD because of that change in the requirements for the SAFMR. 
So in case your RCS ever gets bounced back, I will say this is a caveat. In case you do have a third-party HUD dueling RCS that's sent back to you, and HUD has determined that you have to charge lower rent, that the market rents have decreased from your existing rent schedule, you will have to charge that decreasing rent schedule amount. So your rent will not increase, it will decrease, which is not favorable for your investment team. So this is why it's important to make sure you invest location, location, location. Make sure you're checking a market analysis for every area you're planning to invest in. If your market that you're going to invest in is not increasing in rents once a year or at least by 2% every year, you're going to come with a big problem. We experienced this once in Michigan. (laughs) We had a property um, along the coast of uh, Michigan and the rent decreased on that property. Like the actual small area fair market rent went down. So we ended up having to go through a dueling RCS. The rents decreased maybe by like $50 each unit. We ended up selling that property. Yeah, because that's that's going the opposite direction for what yes. an investor would like. That's not that's not the trend you want. Um, exactly, it's the black sheep of the family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we just talked about dueling RCS. That was a great explanation. I've never heard of that term before, so I'm glad we covered that piece. Uh, operating cost adjustment factor. I know we copied uh, we covered it earlier, but let's just go through it really quick. The operating cost adjustment factor, and then we'll go through the markup to market, and then BBRI afterwards. Yeah. So like I said before, when you're increasing rents, you're going to go through those five aspects where you can consider how to increase the rent, which is the comparable rent adjustment, the OCAF, Operating Cost Adjustment Factor, Chapter 15, Markup to Market, or the BBRI. The OCAF, as we mentioned before, it's an annual increase. Just to put it lightly, it's an annual increase that you're going to determine with your property manager based on the expenses accrued for the property and it has to be exclusive of the debt service so this is once a year the bbri is going to be assessed where it's determining current rent levels are not sufficient to cover the anticipated or unavoidable increases in operating costs so eligible owners can request what's called a bbri a rent increase based on the evaluation of the budget the mark up to market this is where we usually tie in a rehab renovation with the mark the increase in rents so that we have to justify that what we're planning and budgeting for that renovation that the rents will be able to cover that delta in what we're spending on unit renovations and then just make sure that whenever you're assessing your noi your net operating income on your pro forma for your potential investment that you see what is going to be the allowed debt service on the property. Analyzing Section 8 and tax credit properties are different versus market rate because you should be very aware of what's your debt service. The debt service is going to require, it's required payments for principal and interest made with respect to the mortgage secured by the property um, and the property's HUD authorized rent It's unit rents, usually shown in column three of the most recent rent schedule. This would cover the secured HUD approved debt service for the property. I hope I didn't go too fast there. No, I mean, that was that was perfect because and and just so 
people understand this. Pe- well, for the markup to market, Andrea, let me just ask a quick clarifying question. When yes. you request that, who are they working with? Are they working with a federal government had a representative that are working with a local public housing authority. Just clarify that piece a little bit for, for the audience. Anytime you as an owner operator are working to increase the rents of your project, you have the authority to give that rent increase authority to your property manager so that they can work with HUD's contract specialist and account executive. They're two people. You're working with those two people that work at different levels of the department so that you can get that rent increase. And you're going to work with them in order to submit the OCAF. That's usually the property manager that handles the OCAF. But for the markup to market, you should do it as the owner operator to make sure that it goes by smoothly because you are working with so many people in the process. You're working with your, uh, I think it's my development director I've worked with along with the third party RCS appraiser you're working with the lender. You're also going to have to work with your um, team on site, the property manager to see what renovations have to be done. Your equity investors. There's a few people involved when it comes to doing a chapter 15 market to market because you're rehabbing the property, but you're also increasing the rent at the same time. Thank you so much for going through that. That's super helpful. And we just talked about markup to market. What does mark to market you know, I, mean, I highly what's the difference. <laughs> mark to market is different. It's option three, technically in the HUD uh, Section Eight HUD guideline. But your team cannot do a five-year RCS on this asset to bring the the rents to market level because it is the option three, and it's usually available for certain projects whose rents exceed market comparable levels. And as determined by a rent comparability study, and they usually are insured by an FHA loan. So you should see what's the type of financing that's on the property already. And if it's insured by an FHA loan, if the rent levels are higher than the, the, if they exceed, then I would usually what we see is market to market rents. So those ones would not be eligible for a five-year increase. That's good to know. Again, this is why during due diligence, you got to figure out what type of property you're working with, what type of contracts are associated with the property. Yes. What about the reserve for replacement account? What, what does that typically require of a project team? A reserve for replacement account is established for the purpose of providing a source of capital to defray cost to replace structural components and mechanical equipment of the property. So the payment level is initially established in the underwriting. This is what we're going to call as like replacement reserves. And that's a separate account that you're going to keep from the other escrow accounts. Is that usually determined by your team or by the lender? What does that level, what does that reserve lender. look like? Got it. Yeah. The Good lender will tell you how many, let's say it's, it could be $200 per unit up to 300, up to 350. You should really it, it, work with your lender to determine this because the lender assesses this based on the property condition report. Great point. Okay. Annual adjustment factors. This is probably the last one that we'll have time for, but what is the annual adjustment factor? So these are set by HUD based on the consumer price index, and it's data basically detailing changes in residential rent and utility costs, as well as data from random digit dialing rent change surveys of the HUD regions. I haven't really seen any increases on my end, on the ownership side with AAF, but this is something that you should make sure that you work with your property manager to ensure that they're adjusting for. 
And this is basically everything that all encompasses our rent increase phase of the property of a multifamily property. Wow. that There are so many things involved there, Andrea. And maybe for the audience here, just to help them gauge, like, hey, what's the most common, if there is such a thing, as a common way to increase rent? Is it usually the OCAF? Because that happens every year. Yes. What's your opinion on that? The OCAF is usually what happens once a year. And you should look at it in terms of frequency. Increasing a rent should be determined based on level of frequency. So the OCAF is once a year. The five the RCS comparable rent adjustment is every five years. BBRI is whenever you want to adjust it. So this is something could happen once a year, once every other couple of years, but you have to make sure that the calculation is assessed correctly. And that's basically how you increase rents on these units. Interesting. Yeah. In terms of sequencing, if you're doing like a big value add project and you're renovating a lot of our apartments, like 10, 50, maybe even 100 apartments, and you're trying to pursue that markup to market strategy, do you typically do that after all 100 units are done? Can you apply for markup to market rents in between the project, in the middle of the project? Tell us a little bit about that because I think the audience would want to know. We don't apply for a chapter 15 markup to market or start engaging any of those third-party reports until we know that the rent comparability study, the RCS, comes back with a certain targeted rent that we're aiming to do to cover those renovations. Usually on our end, we like to see at least $250 delta increase in rents before we engage the third-party reports. So the RCS comes first whenever we're doing a chapter 15 markup to market. That'll tell us if that's the rent we want to essentially charge in order to cover those renovation expenses. And then we work with the other appraisers, the assessors to engage the phase one environmental, the PCNA, and also the phase one report of the deal. And then if it's a tax credit property, we engage other third parties as well in order to make sure that we have like a market study done. Um, and there's just other factors, like I said, that are involved with that. But the RCS is the most critical part in order to determine whether we can do certain kinds of renovations and also wish list items whenever we're doing a chapter 15 market to market. Wow, that ended up that's that question somehow ended up being a perfect summary, summarizing question that you just did. And everybody listening today, again, you got another million dollar education today from Andrea. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on here and again sharing this invaluable knowledge not only just going through terminology but helping it helping people put it together and really figure out how to actually apply it to their projects thank you so much andrea i appreciate you so much too i mean this is it's honestly now it's fun for me just because i feel like <laughs> i i'm happy to share this knowledge with people with items that i just never learned in the beginning i never really properly introduced myself to my name is andrea garcia rei and i've invested in well over 1700 units as a general partner only by participating in sweat equity so i've been able to become a partner in these deals i've seen every stage of a multifamily affordable housing process renovation go through it the refinance the sale the distribution so it's an exciting area to be involved in as long as you know the terminology you keep asking questions to people who can be your mentors and make sure that you keep adding value. I started with this long, I think it was like seven years ago. 
And I just started asking a bunch of questions and I'm like, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? And then the piece piece of the of the puzzle comes forming together. You know, you don't get it immediately, but eventually you'll see, okay, so if I do this, then I can engage that, then it all works together like a spider web. <laughs> and everybody asks the question sometimes, like, how do I get started? And if you just listen to all the podcasts we've done with Andrea and listen to them two, three, five times, which is what I've done, and really take notes and absorb it, that is the first step. The second step might just be learning how to apply it and learning how to bring value to someone like Andrea, who has over seven years experience, thousands of units in, in her experience and portfolio. Like Andrea is the person that you want to be in a room with. So Andrea, for people that want to bring value to you and reach out to you, what are you looking for right now? What do you have going on and how can people reach out to you? You know, people can feel free to reach out to me um, with any of the Instagram handles, Facebook, LinkedIn, at Andrea Garcia REI. I'm available through a scheduled call. Just let me know what I can help you with. But I really want to see that people are go-givers like you and they're giving back to communities or making sure how they invest in themselves and other people. We are currently at the moment putting in offers for a couple uh, hundred unit buildings. One of them right now is 88 units. Another one is 66. I know that's the way it works, but you know, I, I have my own team. We have our own deals that we invest in and we're always looking for accredited investors, capital partnerships, along with walking you through potentially adopting us as your team. And we can help you out with that process as well, because you're going to go through once you've acquired the property, you've put in an offer, you've you have the best and final, you're accepted. We can help you out with that process as well. Just as long as you remember that we are your partners in this process. And guys, if you want to succeed and you want to have an A++ business, you got to know the A++ people in your, in your life. And Andrea is hands down one of the most sophisticated and educated investors in the affordable housing space that I know, which is why I keep begging her to come on. And she so graciously always comes back on to provide value. So please, please follow Andrea Garcia, REI on Instagram, reach out to her. And if you guys want to join our affordable housing and real estate investing community, you can DM me the word affordable anytime on Instagram at investwithkenhe. And we'll bring you into the community and you will also have access to all the terminologies that Andrea has worked so hard putting together for all of us. So yeah, join Andrea. the community. Come on in. The water's warm. <laughs> yes. Andrea, thank you so much again. And we cannot wait to have you back on to talk about even more terminologies and how how to apply that towards future yes. deals like development property, stabilizing, selling the asset. So we'll have you back on. But meanwhile, th again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Kent. <laughs>